Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. Joining me as my guest today is Diana Anderson, MD, healthcare architect and board-certified internist. She completed her medical residency training at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Columbia University Medical Center. As a architect, Dr. Anderson combines educational and professional experience in both medicine and architecture. Welcome to the show, Diana Anderson. We're delighted to have you join me today. I'd like to start really with the story of where your career began. Why medicine and why architecture? And then why did you combine the two? Well, just to first off start, Moyes, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. You've interviewed some excellent experts in the field, and I'm happy to help contribute to that pool of knowledge. Uh, So it's a bit unusual, I think your listeners might think, to have architecture and medicine. Um, I get asked quite a lot how I did both, and I have to tell you, when I started my journey, it seemed to be quite unusual, but I think if you uh, get a sense of what's happening today in medicine and design, it's more and more common to combine the two. And my hope is that we'll see many more architects and even architecture come into play as we move forward with healthcare design. But some of you may have seen on my website or in some of the articles I write, but I did have a very pivotal trip when I was an undergraduate architecture student. Architecture made sense to me. My parents were both architects. I'd been brought up in the studio making models at a young age, really enjoying thinking about how to create space, something very important, and to really understand design and how it impacts us as human beings. And architecture school is quite fun because you get to learn everything from history to sociology to engineering, freehand drawing. It was such a general education and was just so much fun and came very naturally. So they took us to Scandinavia to see all of the Scandinavian designs, which are quite well written in architectural history books. And one day we happened to be in Finland and we came across the Paimio Sanatorium, which today is very famous It's a World Heritage Site and still functions as a general hospital, but back in the 1920s, of course, it was designed for patients who had tuberculosis. What they knew at that time was a lung disease, but not necessarily how to treat it. So the architect, Alvaralto, knew that he had to create a building in a particular location that would treat the illness. And not only did he design the building, but he went one step further and said, I want to understand what it's like to have this type of lung disease and what I would need to do to experience the building in a better way and have it conducive to healing. So terraces, outdoor time was mandatory, nice winding paths through the forests, even understanding the fact that you wouldn't necessarily want to wash your hands in a sink that you were having sputum production and spitting into because this created sputum in your lungs. So he, Alvaralto, designed separate basins for people to have sputum secretion and wash their hands separately, even going so far as to think about lifting furniture off the floor, which is something we do today to consider infection control. So it really was a place that would treat, and the building itself would be the treatment because we didn't have antibiotics at that time or didn't understand that that's what we needed to use. And I tell you, the moment I walked into that hospital as an undergraduate architecture student, having no idea what I would do with my master's degree or if I would even go on in school, I had this aha moment thinking, I feel pretty good in this space. And I had never felt good or even close to good in a hospital before. You know, the antiseptic smell, the queasy feeling. But this building actually made me feel encouraged. And I wanted to understand why. 
And so I made a switch at that point. And although I continued in my master's of architecture and began to study healthcare design and go on to design a hospital for my thesis, during that time, I began my preclinical studies as well to really understand what it would be like to transition into clinical design or clinical medicine and become a clinician myself. Now, I like to also say that while I was doing my thesis, I kept thinking, wow, I really want to be on the side of the bed that's doing the rounding and understanding the science. But as soon as I became a medical student and was rounding, I kept looking up at the ceiling tiles, counting the space and understanding what can I do with this room. So I've always had my, you know, two hats on at the same time and never quite knew where I fit because I I love both fields equally. Okay. So at some point in history, we went away from the idea of this sanatorium in Finland, which sounds like an amazing hospital, even by today's standards. Mm -hmm. And we started producing factories. Where do you think it all went horribly wrong for us? And why do you think that happened? So I think that's a good question and a complicated answer, both from a medical and architectural standpoint. And I have to say that that moment of visiting that hospital was one pivotal point in my career. But as I went on, it was also my own anecdotes and those of my patients and those of students around me who were studying medicine that changed the trajectory of my career and made me realize that, you know, we're onto something. And because we've had this change in how hospitals are built, we now have this career of healthcare design that needs to address these issues that have come up. Um, And just to tell you that as an architect, being very sensitized to my environment, starting to work in emergency departments or clinical wards where I would never see the daylight, or I would have no space for my own respite time, or I would have to break bad news in a corridor that was noisy and busy. I felt myself listening to these events or being in them and saying, well, this this doesn't have to be this way. While my clinical colleagues said, well, it's just the way it is. These are how buildings are built now. But, you know, I think Leland Kaiser, the healthcare futurist, says we can reinvent healthcare at any time. We're the ones who invented it, essentially. And I think the same is true for architecture. Um, I had a patient a couple of years ago after being in an ICU without windows, which we still have even today, you know, patient rooms with no windows. And patients can be there for many, many days. And as soon as we moved him out, he began to cry and, and grabbed my arm and said, you know, if every prisoner has a window, then how come as a patient we don't have a right to a window as well? And that was the opening line to a piece I wrote about last year when I considered bioethics and healthcare architecture. But to sort of answer your question more directly, I suppose, you know, technology changed quite a bit, um, I think, with the advent of more medical treatments, certainly critical care technologies in the 50s or 60s. Hospitals transformed into big box-like structures, larger mechanical systems, and very deep buildings. And I think we lost some of that idea of the sanatorium of double-loaded corridors that were much more narrow with operable windows. And hospitals became a bit of a machine-like environment to churn people in and out. Yeah. It's almost like we decided that people were machines. And it's like disordered machinery. You would put your car in some of these places and put it up on a ramp and leave it there for days on end. But you think it's okay to put a human being in there. But of course, we're not like, we're not built like that. We're not designed in that way. And yet we put ourselves in the, in those environments. Um, but the Scandinavians and particularly this, this particular, um, individual who developed the sanatorium, knew this very well. Somehow we lost the plot, didn't we, along the way? I think that's a good way to say it. And I'd have to agree that, yes, I think we did lose the plot. 
I think, you know, I spent last year studying bioethics in Boston and some people said, what, you're picking a third career. What, what are you thinking about? And I said, well, actually, I think bioethics is an interesting thing to use to combine the two fields of architecture, specifically healthcare architecture and medicine. And I think one of the more challenging not necessarily problematic, but a challenging issue going forward, and this is where we've gotten to, but how can we fix this, is the idea of the moral imperative of the healthcare architect. And, you know, as architects, we have a basic social responsibility to the world and to act in the public interest. But healthcare architects, we have an additional layer to ensure that these hospitals and health buildings that we design and build do no harm, similar to us as clinicians, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. But I think as architects, we often feel that we're delivering a service at a client's request. And if I'm a physician and a cardiologist and I counsel a patient and say, well, I think it'd be a good idea if you took this medication and here's the data, the, the patient generally says, okay, you know, you've given me information, but I trust your expertise. With architecture, it's a little different. And I think the group of healthcare architects that there are, we are separately board certified from general architects. We are trying to increase our expertise and make a case for the fact that we know what best practice might be and we know when something might cause harm in terms of outcomes and that this is important for the architect-client dynamic. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. We are actually doing harm to our patients by putting them in these environments. And it's not just the intensive care ward, is it? It's also the general wards. It's also primary care clinics, which again, you know, you will go to places that have no windows where you're sitting in a bus depot and where you're expected to go from that bus depot environment or that airport terminal environment to a room where you tell people your deepest, darkest secrets. And you're supposed to be triggered in that environment to do that. And you, you simply aren't because you behave as if you are uh, going to renew your driving license. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, we've known for a long, long time, centuries, perhaps longer, the impact of the built space on people in general. It's, you know, it's why we feel such awe when we walk into grand monuments. It's how we can even control how much you eat at a restaurant based on how we design the restaurant and what colors we use. I mean, architecture and design has a lot of impact. And just as you say we do harm, we also can do very good things through healthcare design, which we've now even recognized through research. So we know that we can impact patient outcomes with the design of our hospitals. There's been good data. You know, evidence-based design is really a field modeled after evidence-based medicine. It's a little bit newer than the clinical field. It began in the mid-1980s. And some could argue our pool of data is not as robust, and that's certainly true. It's very difficult to study components of the built environment sometimes. I mean, doing a randomized control trial with windows is challenging, but through statistical analyses and proper design, we can isolate those components through calculations. And there are ways to study it. I think the bigger questions is what is the drive to study it and, and who does that and who owns it and what is the incentive? All right. So, so Diana Anderson, Docutect, where do we start? So I think we've already started, which is a good thing. Um, and I have to tell you, uh, I get calls probably 
two to three times a week now from young professionals who are either architects and want to foray into medicine or some sort of clinical role, or from medical students, residents, fellows, and young clinicians who say, you know, I see something in design and I want to help. So there's a movement that has begun. And I think it's about finding those like-minded people to come together and say, we can really create change. You know, I had a surgeon call me a couple of years ago and I was very surprised. And I said, how can I help? And he said, well, I've noticed that if my operating room was designed a little differently, I could operate faster and better and have less infection rates. If my operating tools were different, I could do even better. How can I get there? And I thought, wow, this is a really astute observation. Another physician called and said, you know, I work in the academic medical center type of model and academia in medicine is changing. We're not learning the same way. We often don't even have walls in our classrooms anymore. So how does the design of the academic medical center foster how we teach medicine? These are very sophisticated questions coming from younger professionals who want to learn about design and how they can use design to change the outcomes for their patients. So this movement has definitely begun. We pulled together a group called Clinicians for Design to try to tap into these interests and share our stories together, even though they're anecdotes. I think anecdotes are very important and you can create great research questions and studies and really create change just from stories. Yeah. It sounds like we're on the horizon of a very exciting future because we, you know, you, you mentioned there randomized control trials and we know about drug trials and we know about uh, randomized control trials when it comes to surgery and the technical side of medicine. We're now talking about using the same scientific know-how, perhaps not randomized control trials, but certainly the same cl- uh, thinking, scientific thinking to improve outcomes, which are going to have nothing to do with the laboratory. Correct. I mean... This is, I mean, this is partly social science, um, a whole bunch of different, I guess, areas of expertise that has to come together, but there's bigger questions at stake. And so I think what I'd like to ponder for your listeners to then take away and think about also is the fact that we have evidence-based design. It's maybe, you know, several decades old now. We've been doing qualitative data. We can tell you with pretty good certainty, windows are beneficial, and now you might say, well, everybody knows this and it's intuitive through design. But, you know, I think there's value to, to quote unquote, proving that through research. We certainly are going into a sort of big data research type of world. So showing that is important and trying to quantify it. But even going one step further and, you know, we can say single patient rooms have value because there are less falls and infection rates are better. I think you know, in that particular example, there might be downsides we haven't considered in terms of isolation, which to me is one of the big problems in modern health design is the isolation of both patients and clinical staff in the hospital. But um, what I don't hear people asking is everybody's doing their own little studies and kind of pooling it together, but who should be responsible for keeping up to date and collecting the evidence? To, To put this all on architect is a big ask. Architects are like everybody else, very busy, and their job is extremely challenging to design and work with clients and draw and build these buildings. Is there a space in their profession for research? I'm not so sure. Is it somebody else that needs to come in? And and who essentially owns this data? And should it be accessible to a broader field like it is in clinical medicine? 
And do we even go one step further and teach research methods in architecture schools, which currently we don't? But there is great value to just being able to search the literature and critically appraise it. You know, I often run into my design colleagues who, you know, have maybe built a building and gone back in and said, well, we, d- we did a study and we went in and we, we asked some of the staff how they like the space and they love it and they've noticed things that have improved. Well, it's hard to quantify that. It's hard to publish that kind of data. Um, and it's not to the fault of the designers or architects. This isn't something that they do on a regular basis. But should this be part of architecture going forward is a question that I think some of us are starting to ask. And if you if you roll in bioethics to it, you know, do we have a responsibility to study spaces? And going one step beyond, do we have a responsibility to peer review each other's spaces? You know, in medicine, peer review is very, very common. Um, no one would think twice if someone else read the the study that you're working on or a publication came out and many people used it in a journal club. It's very unusual in architecture to have different firms look at each other's work. Architecture is still a a client-based profession. There's proprietary information. We often do these post-occupancy evaluation studies where a building is built and opened and operational maybe for nine, 12 months to get people used to the space and the architecture firm will come back in and quote-unquote study the results in a pure research context, that potentially introduces bias, right? You're building your own building and then you're studying your design. Should we develop a forum where other architects will then judge each other's work? So these are some maybe non-conventional ideas, but I think we're at a point with healthcare design being, you know, at least over 30 years old now to consider where do we go from here? And are we really trying to emulate what medicine has been doing with some of their peer review and research and data models? Yeah. Certainly, yeah, medicine has been doing that for sure, but maybe maybe there is a, a third way, I mean, another way of to do, doing this, in the sense that we're talking about the development of an academic arm to getting the evidence, just as you've described, in very scientific ways. As you say, quantifying the value of having a window, you know, how many more people are going to be more likely to experience a good outcome if they are if they are housed in a, a room with a window. That's fair enough. But for many of us who are listening to you and are already convinced about the value of architecture and design and, and witnessing the impact on our patients, what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? Where do we start? Where do your fans start in taking this forward? I mean, again, challenging questions because I think they're easy to answer in this immediate context, but much harder to implement. I think we've already started in the sense that people are starting to really value healthcare design. I mean, we have full magazines and publications and even a a peer-reviewed evidence-based design journal now where we can share each other's work. And this is making good and fast progress. I mean, to me, what I'd like to see happen sooner rather than later is an architectural peer review process, as I described previously, where each other's project could be judged or at least evaluated or at least reviewed at the design board just for a separate set of eyes. I think there's a lot of value to that. And I think incorporating research into design programs at the training level is the next step not necessarily to create uh, researchers out of architects, but at least enough to critically appraise the literature that's out there. If you're going to be designing hospitals, I think you must be able to present to a client, if you don't put windows in this room, this is what will happen, and here are the papers to substantiate that. 
and be able to make a good case. And I'd like to see some more grant funding for this type of research. This is something we're currently lacking quite a bit of. There are a few architectural entities and clinical entities that will fund design research. But you know, there is a business case for better hospital design. I hear a lot of people say to me, well, good design is just too expensive. And that's certainly not the case. Um, we judge an annual ICU intensive care unit design competition that is worldwide. And I can tell you some of the most fantastic units I've seen have come in under budget, have utilized the most advanced technology of electrostatic glass, um, simple colors, roof gardens, um, ways to get patients outside connected to gases, wonderful designs that are not necessarily expensive. And I think one of my big concerns with healthcare design that I've been writing a lot about lately and will be speaking about later this year at certain venues is the idea of the pendulum swing that's gone towards patient satisfaction in public spaces. I mean, we are, we're all familiar with the atrium hospital that was more done in the 1990s where we had almost a shopping mall integrated into a hospital. What a great idea. And I still think it's a great idea, but there was a huge swing towards patient satisfaction in public areas. Let's dress those up. In order to balance costs, let's dress down the clinical spaces behind the scenes. Let's let's hide the messier part of medicine. And I have certain clinical colleagues who are now feeling very strongly that that is not the right thing to do. Um, and certainly in an era where we address healthcare worker burnout almost on an hourly basis on social media, I don't think we can overlook how healthcare environments influence employee well-being. And so I would like to see this pendulum start swinging back in the other direction. Um, I think we need to send a message that clinicians and staff skills are not undervalued by putting people in spaces without daylight or color because they work there and they're not the patients paying the top dollar for the highest revenue space. So to me, this idea of design equity is what I'll call it for lack of a better term, but I think it encompasses what I'm talking about is we need to think about all users of the space as architects and as healthcare administrators and leaders and balance that out a little bit more. Mm. I was kind of, yeah, I accept that completely. And, and I was thinking another thought occurred to me that, in fact, we want our hospitals to be hospitals, don't we? We want our hospitals to be a place that's quite different from the shopping mall. So it's something to do with semiotics, isn't it? We like to see the symbols of medicine around us when we're not well. I mean, this goes way back to where medicine started with the, um, you know, the traditional healers where you had a very unusual environment where they wore very unusual clothes and they had all these bones and bits and pieces lying around and you knew you were in a healing space. And we have that already, you know, the stethoscopes and the tendon hammers and, and the, all the other paraphernalia. Yet we feel the desire to hide these from patients. So you go into a place that looks like, uh, you know, Tiffany's as opposed to uh, into a primary care physician's office. So that's a fantastic point. And I'd love to speak to that also. You know, we went through a period probably maybe 10 years ago now, where we developed the spa-like hospital. You know, we had the atrium shopping mall hospital, but then the idea of the spa came into play. And I had lived in New York for a while, and many of the outpatient centers designed the building as if it were a spa. And some of the clinics even hid all the equipment. So you would walk in the room, and there would be an examining sort of recliner chair, and all the cabinetry was sort of concealed. I always wanted to do a study on this and sort of understand whether this would heighten or diminish patients' anxiety. Because personally, when I walk into a dentist office, I don't know that if I don't see anything, my anxiety would be less. I think 
I think it's interesting because architecture is going in the direction of hiding and beautifying these spaces, but medicine is moving in an opposite direction of patient autonomy and shared decision-making, whereby as physicians and clinicians, we're opening up medicine and we're talking about goals of care and end of life and what we would actually do and the harm it might cause and the capacity for suffering. As architects, I think we need to be exposing a little bit more through design of what medicine entails and how do we balance that with the trends in medicine? Yeah, I think it's the multiple challenges here in terms of, you know, do you hide it? Do you not hide it? Uh, Windows, no windows, all these kind of things. And, you know, to what extent is it evidence-based? To what extent have we quantified the value, et cetera? And to what extent is it just plain common sense? that You know, you need to be in a place that feels refreshing because you need to feel better. So what one piece of advice would you offer healthcare providers or designers in healthcare, whether they work here in uh, Brisbane, Australia, or in Baltimore, the U.S.? So it's hard to offer just one piece of advice. Maybe I can talk about some sort of tangible summary steps. And maybe touching on what we talked about a few minutes ago, I can give some suggestions, especially because you were talking about the idea of concealing and this idea of beautifying hospitals to an interesting degree. But, you know, certain areas that I think have missed opportunities that I think anyone who already has a hospital or a clinic set up could consider is the idea of the waiting room. Uh, For a while, we tried to get rid of waiting rooms as architects and clients. And we said, well, if patients aren't in a waiting room, um, they'll be happier and we'll have better satisfaction scores. But ultimately, there still was some waiting somewhere along the way. You just weren't waiting in a waiting room. So I'm not sure I'll ever see the waiting room go away for sure. But these are opportunities to think about the shared decision-making in medicine and make them active spaces where things can be done. People can learn, people can work, people can converse and collaborate and recharge devices, whatever needs to be done. Um, I think I talk about this a lot as well and write about it, but hospital and clinic corridors is a really missed opportunity. You know, we often think of these spaces as the minimum eight foot mandatory connection between rooms. But if you look at famous even residential architects. I recently read a book on Frank Lloyd Wright's Prairie House. And, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright paid wonderful attention to all of the rooms of the houses. I mean, even the bathroom, the bedroom, understanding that, sure, the foyer and the dining room are the more public-facing sides of the house, but every room deserved equal attention, um, including the transition points, right? And Frank Lloyd Wright did something interesting where he tried to break down the box or deconstruct the box through different techniques and not necessarily have um, piers at corners, but break up corners with windows. So I think when I'm talking about corridors, I'm seeing this as a really great opportunity to make the corridor as an active space. So when I think about my time as a resident and even now as a fellow, you know, I see patients doing their physical therapy in corridors every day. We're really coming away from the idea of putting someone in a bed and leaving them there. In fact, that's creating harm, right? We know that bed rest is extremely bad for people. We used to say in residency for every day, a much older person, a geriatric patient is in bed, it might take them a week of rehab. That's pretty shocking statistic. So we want more home and more mobility and less hospital bed. So where do people go? Well, they go into the corridors. And so the question becomes, do your rooms need to really be so big for patients? And do they need to be focused around the bed as the focal point of the room? You know, as architects, we start with the bed and we design around it. 
can we think about it more in terms of even the housing model that I mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright thinking about? Think about all the spaces you would need to move around and then design around that. Um, so physical therapy happens in the corridors. Physicians and nurses and pharmacists round in corridors. Um, patients like to sit sometimes in corridors and have some collaboration. It's very lonely to be in your own room in bed all day, especially if you have no one visiting. There's a story at uh, a critical care unit in New York, in fact. It's amazing to me that we get patients up and out of bed even when they're on a ventilator in the ICU. And they're walking while they're being ventilated, while there's a tube in their windpipe. One of the patients was quite discouraged and said, you know, every day I walk in this corridor, but I don't know how far I went. And so the leader of the intensive care unit went to Home Depot, bought some sticky numbers. And this is a true story. Next day, stuck number one, two, three, indicating meters, feet, depending on where you're from. I'm Canadian. Uh, down the hallway. And the patient was ecstatic. He said, you know, I went two, two meet or two feeters, feet yesterday, and today I went further. And just this idea of the corridor is this dynamic space and people can gain so much from it. We can incorporate seating, we can have activities. So corridors, waiting rooms, considering maybe the bed, not necessarily as the focal point, how can we get rid of that? And to that same end in the clinic space, because we talk a lot about hospitals, but clinics are hugely important. Do you even need that old fashioned examining table in your room? It's quite bulky and large. And I certainly know that my older geriatric patients have a tough time climbing up on that. There are some new products on the market, which are more like exam chairs. It's very rare, I have to say, that I fully get someone in a gown every single clinic visit and lie them down and do all of the exam maneuvers. Of course, you need that capability. But I think there's ways to design the clinic room a little differently. Um, and not have a desk with one side and then the other, but... I've seen layouts that work very well thinking about this idea of shared decision-making, but have a, a small round table, have several chairs because lots of older patients in medicine usually come with friends or family or decision-makers with them. So it's not only just the physician and the patient, there's other people who help. It takes a lot of people to take care of others. So these are just some easy, tangible ideas I think I'd like to see people adopt in their existing spaces, and you don't necessarily need to move partitions and renovate and do anything major to make these changes. It's more about, I guess, the operations, which is one thing, right? You can think about the built environment, but your operational care models also have to blend with that. And so I think that's the key to having architects work with clinicians and health administrators and marry all of that together, because, you know, it's it's great if we provide a quiet space where blood pressure can be taken accurately, but if that's not built into the program of the clinic and it won't be used. And so we have to understand how to marry those two together. Don Anderson, when we started the health design podcast, we had an inkling, those of us who set it up, that other disciplines would have an awful lot to contribute to improving outcomes. What you have shared with us is an enormous amount of wisdom, a great deal of compassion, and some fantastic insights. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for listening. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com. <laughs>